Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today we're talking to Jason Knurk, the chair of the History Department at Central Washington University. Professor Knurk is a modern Irish historian who also teaches British and Western European history. His research concerns the Irish Revolution and the foundations of the Irish state, of the Irish Free State, I should say, focusing particularly on the political rhetoric of the period. Some of his previous books include Women of the Doll, Gender, Republicanism, and the Anglo-Irish Treaty, and more recently, After Image of the Revolution, Common in Yale and Irish Politics, 1922-1932. And he's also the co-editor with Mel Farrell and Kira Meehan of A Formative Decade, Irish Politics and Political Culture in the 1920s. So welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Aidan. I appreciate it. Sure. So you've written quite a bit about 1920s Ireland. Um, why write another book? What's new? What new things did you have to say about this period? Okay. Well, um... This book had quite a long odyssey. It started as a biography or an intended biography of W.T. Cosgrave. And then somewhere along the way, I started doing some work on the Farmers Party. And that interested me because there had not been much written about them. And they seemed to really think they were going to come to power in an agrarian country like Ireland. And so that eventually split off into this notion of opposition parties in the in the early free state and kind of the what i wanted to talk about was this um this pattern that i'd seen in a lot of sources that politicians in the 1920s spent a lot of time attempting to explain democracy and what it was to their perceived electorate and over and over and over again they told you know uh political meetings, they wrote in newspapers, all sorts of things about what democracy was. And I started to think that that sat uneasily beside a lot of literature that talked about how Ireland's sort of um, uh, democratic apprenticeship under British rule um, paved the way for the success of the free state democratically. And this notion that, um, you know, the free state was one of the few states created after Versailles that remains democratic. And so this constant belief from politicians that the Irish population didn't understand democracy juxtaposed against the, the, the kind of common assurance from historians and political scientists that there was this democratic legacy started to interest. And so that's what I was trying to kind of pull apart in this book. What kind of democracy did politicians of the 20s envision? How was that different from what they actually got? And how did they see the legacy that they purportedly had inherited from Britain? And so that's kind of where I, that's kind of where this book took off. But it was a long, a, a long wandering uh, journey to get there. So, so this question of democracy is obviously really central to what you're doing. And, and there's people like Basil Chubb or Tom Garvin who who see the 1920s as like the, I think Garvin has a book called The Birth of Irish Democracy. Yeah, right. So so why, are they wrong? Or, or and if so, why? 
Um, I I think that I I think that there's been a couple of things in the literature. I mean, the, I guess that I wanted to query, and one of them is this belief that, and you see it in older works in the 1970s, or like Joseph Curran's Birth of the Irish Free State in the early 80s, and honestly, in a lot of Tom Garvin's work, that democracy was enshrined in Ireland as the right people won the Civil War, right? That that this that people who were Democrats won the Civil War. And I I think to me, I guess, the adherence of, you know, say Collins or Cosgrave or Higgins or even Dev to democracy certainly was important, but I don't think it was I don't think it was sufficient. And I and I started to think about how many of these works don't talk about the role of minor parties at all. They're all very focused on just the nationalists and the, the, the sort of heirs of Sinn Fein. And so I wanted to look at how non-Sinn Fein actors had contributed to this story of democracy. And that had been left out in a lot of it. Mel Farrell talks about it in a more recent work. But leading up to that, there wasn't a lot of that. Um, and I also started thinking about the, the teleology that Ireland did end up more or less democratic, and it ended up with a system that was more or less like Britain's. But nobody wanted that in 1922. Nobody thought that would be what would, what, what, what would take root. And every, not everyone, lots of people, even amongst non-nationalist parties, were talking about how they could, for lack of a better word, galicize kind of the state. And and they were hoping for something very different than what they got. And so I kind of wanted to restore that contingency, that this belief that they were going to attempt to um, improve on the, the, the British state or not make some of the mistakes of the British state. Um, and what eventually kind of um, got me thinking about this was this notion that of, of a Gaelic state and I talked about this a little bit in previous work but they all talked about it and we haven't really queried it as historians much except for as it had to do with the language but um but but politicians at the time meant something broader than that and they didn't always articulate what they meant and oftentimes it was just not the British state but I started to think about how this kind of notion of a Gaelic state or a Gaelic democracy or a Gaelic fiscal system, um, what it meant to people at the time and what they kind of hoped to um, head towards. And I thought that had kind of been, well, it was under-theorized by the revolutionaries, but I thought it was also maybe not as discussed as it could be in some of the literature. So I wanted to do something that was less focused on individual leaders um, that didn't necessarily except the notion that the the British democratic practice in Ireland paved the way for democracy and that brought in groups other than just the heirs or the members of Sinn Fein. And that's kind of what I wanted to what I wanted to do. And the last thing that I wanted to do was um sort of decenter the civil war in our narratives. Again, Garvin's nineteen twenty two. 1922 is certainly important, but I think the questioning of democracy went on long after the guns fell silent. And I think there is a through line of talking about democracy and opposition and whether opposition can or should function 
um, that continued after after that. And I think that the use of guns or our focus on that period, again, however important, um, kind of distracted from some of the real, really interesting and sophisticated conversations about majority rights, minority rights, the role of opposition, what a Gaelic democracy meant, um, that that continued on into the 1930s. And it certainly didn't stop when the, when the guns fell silent. So that's kind of what I wanted to do in terms of um, nuancing or expanding previous work. Mm-hmm. So, so when they, I mean, I, I've come across this rhetoric myself in my own work where they talk about a Gaelic state. One way to interpret it is that they just mean it literally, like they literally mean we're going to recreate medieval Ireland in the modern age. And the other extreme is to say, really all they're doing is just transferring ownership from a British style, of a British style regime into Irish hands, but it still remains the same. So, so what, how would you kind of pinpoint the legacy of what they're doing, right? The, the ideological legacy of the free state. Is it purely nationalist? Is it just British? Is it some complicated mixture of the two or something totally different? Yeah, I think, I mean, there were people, Daryl Figgis, for example, who did at least want to root the what became the free state in what he saw as sort of medieval or pre-conquest Gaelic structures, whether it be the elevation of artists, or vocational councils. I mean, a lot of this was invented, obviously, right? But so there were people mm-hmm. like that. Um, I I don't think that's what most of them meant. Although there, are, I mean, Collins occasionally talked like that a little bit too. But um, I think what a lot of them meant was a state organized differently than Britain, but more than just transferring of ownership, the kind of core uh, tenet of nationalism, they wanted a state organized around what they thought were Irish priorities. Um, for the Farmers Party, this meant an agrarian state, dominated by an agrarian party, dominated by agrarian issues, and no longer subject to what they perceived as sort of an alien bureaucracy sitting in Dublin of sophisticated urbanites that didn't understand the land. So I think, I think for them, that's what the Gaelic state meant an agrarian state. Um, for others, some of them by that meant kind of Griffith's his fiscal system or economic system with tariffs, um, autarky, that kind of thing. A lot of them, like when they talked in 1922 and 1923 about a Gaelic fiscal system, they meant not simply um, bringing in the tax code from Britain wholesale, but to rewrite it to make it suit Irish priorities, which were, again, agriculture, small-scale manufacturing, this kind of thing. And so I, I think in shorthand, it kind of meant not Britain, right? I mean, in, in, in the way that Declan Kyber talks about Ireland as the not England, right? But but beyond that, I think they wanted to create a political system, a fiscal system, a financial system, um, and a social system that they believed reflected Ireland's interests as a non-imperial, largely agrarian, ideally autarkic, um, small nation. And I think that that's, that's what they wanted. I think that, and this is some work I'm doing now, it's not in this book, but most of them did not see this as anti-modern, backward-looking. They wanted to modernize. Even the agrarian folks wanted to be like Denmark. They wanted to have what they perceived as co-ops that could afford modern equipment for dairying and all this kind of thing. And so it was an anti-modern, backward-looking. Uh, Figus may be accepted, but, um, but it was 
it was a belief that they could set up a different kind of politics and economics that were suited for Irish conditions and not the conditions of the colonizer. And so I think it mattered. I mean, the language also was a crucial part of this, right? We, part, I mean, that's been discussed a lot, but the, the language was seen as, as a crucial indicator of this. And I don't want to dismiss that in any way, shape, or form, but, but they meant more than just that too. But, but it was often in poet. So you mentioned like like to, what they're really seeking in one way is to not be like the colonizer, um, and a lot of the the kind of rhetoric and the ideas you're talking about here they do seem very familiar to other decolonizing colonies. So y you have one chapter about um, decolonizing the state, I think is what you call it. So what does a common and Yale decolonization look like, or even are common and Yale an, a decolonial party, an anti-colonial party? Yeah, I mean, they tried to they tried to walk the line between being anti-imperial, which I think they did identify as, and being anglophobic, which they tended to dismiss as unrealistic and idealistic, um, largely for economic reasons. But I do think that they that they tried to decolonize. They wanted to improve on British practices in politics, for example. Bad parties consistently decried what they saw as the corruption of the British two-party system, the meaninglessness of the... They always called it a two-party system. They either foresaw the rise of labor or the but, but they always called it a two-party system. But anyhow, um, they constantly criticized that, and they constantly criticized um, party whips and people being forced to vote against their perceived consciences for political reasons. And... Sometimes the reference was Britain and its parliament. Sometimes the reference was Tammany Hall and a more American kind of references, by which, again, though, they meant sort of machine politics and, and whips being applied and that kind of thing. So there was this belief that they could have a parliament where people were actually free to speak their minds and discuss issues instead of always voting for party advantage. They didn't get this, right? I mean, this is not clearly what happened, but... There was a real sense amongst everyone that that could happen, and they often pitched that as separating themselves from the colonial model. Um, and I guess one of the things that struck me was in the endless verbiage trying to explain democracy to their audiences or trying to chastise their perceived electorates for not voting as they should, right? So young workers voting for for uh, fall instead of labor or whatever. Um, none of the parties used the British system as a touchstone for that education. They never referenced that as a sort of positive model. Almost never. Uh, they very much did want to separate from that, from that uh, colonizer. Um, I think politically, Kuhn-Nagel ended up uh, sort of channeling its decolonization into diplomatic terms, which it turned out the electric didn't care about a whole lot. And other parties openly scorned. The farmers were constantly saying they should shut down the Ministry of External Affairs and this. But um, but a lot of it got channeled out. But there was this sense that they could build a state and a tax code and a fiscal system that was separated from the colonizer. Again, much of this didn't come to pass. Certainly economic uh, decolonization didn't come to pass, right? They remained dependent on the British market into the 30s, but, well, actually, farther than that. Um, 
but I think there was a, a, a real sense that that's what that that's what they wanted to do. Um, and the other part of decolonization that was important to them was to Irish politicians in the twenties was redefining the relationship between people and government. Um, for the governing part, for the treatyites, this was getting rid of the mentality that to be against the government was itself a virtue, right? Which is a very colonial kind of, and this is again, common in decolonism, right? Or post-colonial states. Um, but there was an attempt to have, to try to, what they perceived as educate the people on how the change in power meant that government was now something, you know, sort of of and for the Irish people rather than something to be resisted. Um, and they very definitely linked that back to, to colonialism. Um, people as varied as Kevin O'Higgins, Margaret, Margaret Collins O'Driscoll, um, they all talked about how the Irish people they perceived as still having this, this will to rebel and seeing rebellion as a good thing in and of itself, and that in a self-governing state, that was, that was important. Um, and I think it was particularly important because the other sort of bit of decolonization that was uh, inherited, probably not quite the right word, but passed down was the the desire to push against British stereotypes that the Irish were unfit for self-government. There was a constant concern that the Civil War or endless political squabbling at the national level would demonstrate the validity of that British stereotype. And they were constantly worried about they not just the treatyites they articulated the most, but the farmers talked about this um, that they did not want to validate British stereotypes by showing that they couldn't govern themselves either because of violence, because of debt. Cosgrave linked this to debt a lot. If we can't balance our budget, it looks like we can't govern ourselves, right? Um, and, and and there were there were frequent references to how they didn't want a Mexican democracy, as they called it, which to them was shorthand for a a, a post-colonial state that couldn't govern itself without violence. And so they used this constantly as a way. I mean, there's obviously a racial, more than a tinge there too, right? But um, that this notion that, that, that they did not want to be seen as a country that couldn't govern itself and thus validate, in some sense, the sort of colonial civilizing mission. And that was referenced an awful lot in the in the twenties and actually into the thirties. So, so the, the sort of the, the big stick that Fianna Fáil use when they come to power or as they're coming to power in thirty two is that, I mean, they rail against Fien against coming to Yale for being essentially still too dependent on Britain. So, in in the kind of language you're using, they they're basically saying you're still colonized or you're still part of this colonial rule. Was it always going to be a failed project then from coming to Yale if they're, if they're not emphasizing the economic side of decolonization instead looking towards these maybe more abstract things about about governance and sovereignty and um, democracy? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, in hindsight, yes, because those the statute of Westminster didn't have the public um, uh, impact that, say, the word republic did. Right or things like that. So yes, there was a, there was a, the ability in nationalist politics that Dev did so brilliantly to emphasize any kind of continuing links um, to Britain, and I mean yeah to Britain. And 
and it Kuna Gale stuff didn't play as well politically, and and largely the unwillingness to sort of amp that up was rooted in economic ties. That I mean, they tried to find other markets in the twenties, just like Tito Paul does in the thirties during the economic war, right? For Irish products, largely failed to do so. Um, they were really hoping they here being treatyites and farmers that Irish agriculture could modernize along the lines of, again, Denmark's the most often cited um, example, particularly Irish dairy, and then could be competitive in markets outside of Britain. That didn't happen. Um, maybe with more economic investment in that kind of thing, it might have, but it didn't. And so, yeah, without the the economic entanglement led to what in later times we would call sort of neocolonial right? connections. They didn't use that term at the time, but but they, they, yeah, they were always going to be holdable to that argument because they weren't pursuing autarky. The treatyites weren't pursuing autarky. And that was a key plank of the revolutionary sort of anti-imperial program. Mm-hmm. So, so how, when Fianna Fáil come into existence in, in 26, how does that change the narrative that you're recounting? Um, it changes a lot of things. I mean, it, it, this, um, in the mid-1920s, the, the farmers, labor, the National League, all were aiming for what they called normal politics. I try to use normal in quotes in the book because it, in fact, was no such thing. There is no such thing. But what they meant by that was they thought Ireland was developing towards how they perceived European politics, which is multiple parties organized largely around economic issues, in essence, class politics. And the farmers thought this would help them because Ireland had an agricultural majority. Labor thought, because of um, Marxist assumptions of the sort of teleological rise of the working class, that this would help them. So they all thought Irish politics would get past this nationalist stuff, get past the focus on the treaty and the oath and all that kind of stuff, and organize normally, naturally, um, around economic interests. And it looked like that was happening. Labor did well in 22, the farmers do well in 23. In the June 27 election, the two Sinn Féin parties get the smallest share of, well, three Sinn Féin parties get the smallest share of the vote they'd ever had. And so it looked like things were moving towards this sort of end of nationalist hegemony, which was worrying the treatyites in particular quite a lot. Um, And then when Fianna Fáil is formed and then enters the doll in 1927, that all gets disrupted almost immediately. Um, the focus again becomes the treaty and the oath and all these kinds of things that the smaller parties were hoping would fall by the wayside. Um, the The treatyites become, they they ditch a lot of their previous views, which were that Ireland's Irish politics should be loose temporary coalitions of people voting their minds and their conscience you know they shouldn't necessarily have uh hard and fast parties all the time and it's okay to have some shifting around of alliances they dump they dump all that and because they're worried about the rise of the anti-treatyites they now start to define a national party as like they didn't use this term but like a popular front against against republicans and the issue very much becomes the state in danger. Are you for keeping the state or against it? And they start doing what the old Irish party did, and that's gobble up 
potential rivals, whether the farmers and eventually the National Farmers and Ratepayers League and that. And so um, it shifts the dynamic of treatyites kind of version of this national party. It shifts, it, 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 it um, destroys the smaller parties. And they're aware of it almost immediately. Um, in the month between Fianna Fáil coming in the doll and this election that's called in September, labor and the, and the farmers are already bemoaning the fact that this means we won't get to talk about economic issues. It's all going to be politics again. And so they know this immediately. Um, it also starts to make Fianna Fáil think about what it's going to do in opposition and how it's going to organize itself. And they start to reframe the oath the argument about the oath as less about Britain and more about democracy. The oath is keeping the parliament from being representative. It's keeping people from exerting their rights uh, because they can't enter the, the, the parliament. Um, and they start to, they start to formulate themselves as also a national movement, something, not a party or parties. Um, and they start to focus on discipline. They're obsessed with internal discipline, um, in part because they've seen the treaty, I think, fragment so many ways over the past five years. So it, it shifts the, uh, both of the main nationalist parties in 1927 still want to be a national party and a national movement that encompasses all, all classes and all creeds and doesn't necessarily have uh, room for opposition, but they start to defend it differently. Um, and they start to, it, it's less about reclaiming the wonderful unity of 1920 and more about not having the free state turn into Weimar or the third Republic, which they perceived as, you know, they perceived as, um, chaotic because there were too many parties, too much conflict, constantly shifting coalitions. And, and so it becomes much more about avoiding that than it does about the, the three glorious years, you know, back in, in 1919. It, it is a kind of a wonderfully polemical idea to think that Ireland never became normal because of Fianna Fáil, not in, in um, uh, but if we look in, say, into the 1930s and the rise of the blue shirts, which is what your book ends by talking about, I mean, in one sense, that, that looks quite normal from the perspective of 1930s Europe. Um, so, so where do you feel where would you place the blue shirts historically? Like, are, are they a version of fascism? Um, are they a product of Irish culture or are they kind of an importation of something from continental Europe? Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, you know, the Mike Cronin, right, more or less argued that the leaders were fascist in European lines, but the rank and file were not, or at least imbibed that stuff a little bit less. Certainly the trappings were imported, the shirts and the, the, the outfits and all that kind of stuff. But there's a, to my mind, there's a lot of continuity with Irish politics before that, just like in continental fascist movements, there's a lot of continuity with national, nationalist politics, right? Whether it's in Germany, Austria, whatever. I don't think that's uniquely Irish. Um, but certainly the way the blue shirts denigrated politics and parliaments um, and politicians in 1933 was not fundamentally different from the way most Sinn Feiners talked about the Irish party in 1921. The context was clearly different, right? Um, but 
a lot of the language decrying politicians as corrupt and old and out of touch and talk over action. Again, this is common in the younger generation in Europe after World War One everywhere, right? It's not, a, but but it certainly would not have been out of place in 1921 or um, 1922. Critiques of the party system, similarly, um, again, some directed at the Irish party, some directed at the British parties. Um, the critiques uttered by the blue shirts in 1933, very similar to how Sinn Féin leaders talked, or labor leaders at times talked in 1921 or 1922. Um, there was a sort of, again, anti-colonial undercurrent to some of this in Ireland in the 1920s in that a lot of the politicians who were blamed and criticized could be classified as British, could be classified as other, could be classified as alien, right? And so that changes it a little bit, but a lot of the language is, is fairly consistent. Um, cults of personality, not particularly new in Irish politics. Right? I mean, um, uh, O'Connell and Parnell, right? Dev, uh, O'Duffy doesn't quite fit in that, in that troika perhaps, but I mean, uh, but that kind of notion of a mass movement with a single elevated venerated leader was very much a feature of 19th century um, Irish politics that I don't think was, again, necessarily uh, new. Um, the xenophobic rhetoric, at times anti-Semitic, that you see from the blue shirts also borrows some from continental fascism, but... Um, Critiques, particularly of De Valera, as not Irish, as Spanish or Cuban or Mexican, depending on the speaker, um, that was, again, it was probably more common in 1933, but it was not unknown in 1922 or 1923. I mean, there certainly was that kind of rhetoric against someone who was perceived as being not genuinely Irish. Um, that So that would not have been unfamiliar, the, the comments about in particular, Deb, although others that were made by the Blue Shirts in 1933 would not have been seen as out of bounds in 22 or 23 either. So I think there is a fair amount of um, continuity there. What what makes it different is to a little bit is that the Blue Shirts were more willing to go after the institution of a parliament itself, whereas in 21, 22, 23, there was talk about, I mean, most politicians assumed there would be a parliament. They maybe wanted it structured differently or non, not based in parties or this, that, the other thing. But, but in 32 or 33, there was much more talk of sidelining parliament for the vocational councils. Um, and that was taken from Italy and from the Catholic Church, right? So those are kind of imports. But, um, but the thing about, in many ways, the blue shirts and Irish labor had some of the same difficulties. They both drew heavily from continental ideas, but desperately tried to, to, to prove that these ideas were actually rooted in Ireland, right? So labor would often say that they were looking at, um, at uh, John Mitchell's notion of land ownership or the late career Michael Davitt's notions of land ownership and not Marx and Engels so much, right? Similarly, the, the, the fascists, the blue shirts, were attempting to show that it wasn't all that they were just importing from Italy. And they, they rarely talked, they, they talked less about Germany, mostly Italy, Catholic connection, and some extent the, the Francoists. Um, but they, uh, 
they desperately tried to show that a lot of this was Irish in origin because they, they both parties recognized that they were susceptible to being seen as just continental imitators, and they didn't and they didn't think that was going to be a winner sort of politically. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's always struck me that like the the thing of labeling the anti-treatyites as engaging in Mexican politics, it's clearly operating on a couple of different registers about comparing Ireland potentially to, to Mexico in the 1920s, but also just needling de Valera quite directly as, as a, a non-Irish Mexican, um, or at least potentially so. Cosgrave says basically that at one point, I'm paraphrasing here, but that, uh, that chaos in Mexican politics could be brought by a son of Mexico, and clearly a de Valera reference right i mean and and the audience would have, would have perceived it as such but yeah it is working on a number of levels and that this 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 belief that you know bruce nelson and others have written about that the irish saw themselves as being sympathetic to uh say indian nationalists or egyptian nationalists or or other decolonizing states but also tended to see themselves as white and superior to that right and there was always kind of a hierarchy of of victimhood and of, um, of race. And so there's that, that's obviously a play too here. Well, thank you so much for this incredibly rich conversation. Uh, Democracy and Dissent in the Irish Free State is out now with Manchester University Press. Professor Knurk, thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it.